Father, indeed, we look to you to be the source of power and glory in your kingdom, Lord, that is spreading through this earth. We look to you, Lord, to be the one to open our eyes and to make us and shape us after the image of Christ. We look to you, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would speak to us, for we know that your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So will you do your work, Lord, upon our hearts this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, as we've come in our study. Romans 11 is a little bit different of a chapter than we've looked at so far, but interesting nonetheless. It's a long chapter, but nonetheless... uh, Let's stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? 
Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's please have a seat. You know, it is, it is always a privilege to do premarital counseling, and one of my goals in premarital counseling is to try to help this new couple recognize that they are going to face expectations in their marriage that go unmet. So the question is, how do we prepare them for that moment when they realize expectations that they didn't even know they had are not being met? Because those are, those are things that can rock a relationship. The same thing can be true, you could say, with a parent and their children. You know, as children are growing up and we have all these expectations upon our children because of the way we raise them or we train them or we pour into them, and then they don't meet those expectations, well, that too can be one of those hard things to face as a parent. And anytime we find ourselves facing something in life that that goes against our expectations, it does provide some challenge to something in our life that is considered kind of a bedrock and causes us to make decisions about which direction we're going to go in life. And I think about that on a, th- those are illustrations kind of on a personal scale, but we can, we can expand that up a little bit and to think there are expectations, I think, that many people in the church have about the way life is supposed to go, about the way the nations are supposed to behave, the way the gospel is supposed to be spread. And when those expectations don't get met, that can be even more devastating, especially to someone's faith. It's, it's a challenge to your faith. And as we look around in the world today and, and, and see that we seem to be moving farther and farther, at least in the West, from a, a biblical lens, a biblical way of looking at life and interpreting the problems that exist in the world, that's a hard reality. That's, a, that's an expectation I think a lot of people are having to face. And it leads people to want to react in, in despair, in a sense of panic, perhaps even a sense of anger, because in some ways what they feel like, their foundations are being shaken because these expectations are suddenly that they didn't, maybe they didn't really realize they had, are being rocked, are being shaken. So, what do you do about that? What do you do when you're in that situation? Well, you can either let your faith be shaken or you can let be shaken perhaps the thing that your faith is falsely in. And I think that is 
largely what we see happening in the book of Romans, especially when we get to chapter 9 and 10 and 11. 9, 10, and 11 are kind of one big package together. And they're, they're answering a question that many in the first century were experiencing because things were not unfolding, especially as the Jewish people had expected. In what way were things unfo- not unfolding or unfolding in a way that they didn't expect? Well, as they looked around at the church, the church was growing, but it was predominantly growing by Gentiles and not Jewish believers. The Jews, for the most part, were rejecting the message time and time again. If you follow through the book of Acts, and especially the ministry of the Apostle Paul, as he goes from city to city throughout the, what is now Turkey, the, the, um, the Galatia region at the time, churches like Ephesus and Corinth and other places that you read about, you'll find his, his method is very, is very straightforward. He follows the same method. When he goes to a new city, he always goes to the synagogue. So he can present this message about Christ being the Messiah to the Jewish people. And in city after city after city, the Jewish people are largely rejecting the message. But the Gentile people are receiving it. In fact, on multiple occasions, he says, I'm going to the Jewish people. I'm going to, I went to you first, but you rejected it, so now I'm going to the Gentiles. And so that was such a frequent occurrence that he became known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He even talks about that in this letter as me, the apostle to the Gentiles. So, what is going on as he's explaining this gospel? He's having to answer this phenomenon of an unmet expectation that God's kingdom is coming to earth in a way that doesn't look like the expectations that his own brothers and sisters in the faith had. So, how do we account for this? And why is it happening? And that's what chapters 9, 10, 11 are helping us to see. In chapter 9, he introduces the whole doctrine of election, you recall. He talks about how it is by God's choice and not man's choice that those people in the kingdom are, are there. And then in chapter 10, he goes on to expound that to say, well, yes, it is indeed God's choice. We don't know who He's choosing until those people that He has chosen before the foundation of the world respond to Him. And so he says, you know, how can they respond unless they, have, they hear a preacher? And how can they... Uh, the, the whole idea is not only has God ordained who it is that is His elect, but He's ordained the means by which they're going to come to that recognition that they are indeed His elect, and that is by the hearing of the gospel and the confession of faith with their mouth and the obedience of faith they have in the lives. So who do we know is God's elect? It's not those who are... Who are it's back up. It is those we know from an observation perspective whose lives have been touched and changed, who have given confession that Jesus is the Christ. Because we know that that can only happen if God has first given birth to a faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, which of course is something we're reading about in Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. So we see the gospel is all fitting together as Paul is beginning to unpack it, and now he's, as he's introduced this doctrine of election, of election to explain certain things about these unmet expectations, and he hits chapter 9 and 10, now he comes to chapter 11 and is dealing point blank with this, this reality of how do we understand that it sure looks like God is rejecting the Jewish people. And in essence, the message that we want to see
is that God's purposes do not fail. Now, sometimes our expectations aren't right. So, in that case, when we find ourselves facing things in the world that would upset our apple cart, so to speak, it's not time to throw away our faith. It's time to reshape our faith because God's purposes will not fail. So, rather than thinking that, well, God has somehow missed the mark or changed His mind or gone a new direction, perhaps I didn't have quite things figured out in my own mind, in my own faith. So, it's a chance to refine your faith. It's a chance to build your faith upon that which we know is true. So, I want to walk through what are the purposes of God, especially what it seems like this rejection of the Jewish people. What are the purposes of God? Well, first of all, God's purpose in it is to show uh, that salvation is by grace and grace alone. That is the first thing we see. And he introduces the chapter with the question, did God reject His people? And of course, the answer is no, and the evidence he gives to support that is, is by way of two things. He says, there is, there's always been a remnant of Jews that belong to the Lord. And he himself points to himself, I'm one of them, for I am a Jew. So, not all the Jews have rejected this. There are some that have embraced it. So, don't say that God has rejected all. And also, this is not a new idea, this whole idea of a remnant. Even in the Old Testament, that idea was existing, and he gives the illustration of, of Elijah. And if you know the story of Elijah, Elijah was a great prophet who challenged, the, who challenged uh, King Ahaz in Samaria and his prophets of Baal to see, well, who is the real God? And they come, of course, and meet him on Mount Carmel where he says, the challenge is this, let's see which God answers by fire. He says, you guys go first. So there are 400 prophets build an altar, begin their chants and their weird prayers, and they're dancing around, asking for their God to bring fire to the altar, and nothing comes. Elijah's even poking fun at them. Maybe he can't hear you sing louder. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom, and still nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn later in the day, and he has them bring all these ceremonial jars filled with water and dump it over the over the rebuilt altar, dump it over the wood, dump it over the, the animal, dump it over everything so that it's so flooded it's running out on the ground. And then he prays, and fire falls down from heaven, burns up the offering, burns up the altar itself, licks up all the water that had been poured out. And all the people are just bumbling around. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah points to the prophets of Baal and says, seize them and kill them. And they kill 400 men right there on the spot for being false prophets. And you would think wow, we're going to turn the nation back to God, but not so. The queen, the queen Jezebel, who wasn't there at the time, hears about what's happened and vows to come after Elijah and do to him what he did to her prophets. And it doesn't seem like anything has changed. And Elijah flees into the desert, and he's so frustrated before God. He says, God, I am the only one left. I'm the only one left who trusts you. And God's answer says, no, you're not. No, you're not, for I have reserved a remnant for myself. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So this idea of remnant, of being a remnant within the, nation, the, the larger nation of Israel has, is not a new idea. So this idea that they think that God is rejecting His people, no, He's not. There's still a remnant today. Paul is evidence of that, and it's not a new idea. So that's his first way of saying, yes, this remnant idea is not a new idea. 
So why does it appear so many of the Jewish people are rejecting the message? Why does it appear that way? Well, he goes on to explain in verses 5 and 6, he says, at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The point is that the people of Israel, largely speaking, now this is not true of all individualistically, but largely speaking, had embraced a religion that was dependent upon the fact that they had been God's chosen people, they had been given the covenants, they had been given the law, and as long as they kept the law, as long as they kept obedient to the covenant, then God would reward them with salvation. That was the thinking. And God, in essence, by what He's doing here is saying, you are wrong. (laughs) I am not going to reward anyone with salvation because there is not a person on the planet who has earned it. That's the point. So I must absolutely reject you as a people, what seems like as a whole, because your religion is based on something that will never get you into my kingdom. So the rejection isn't so much a rejection of the people, but the way in which the people thought they could approach God. So what they're saying falls under the purposes of God to further explain what this good news, this gospel is, that He's beginning to preach throughout the world. And what is that gospel? Well, just as we do a quick recall, I mean, it introduces it in chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, remember what he says, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So, he's revealing the righteousness. That's the key. If you want to be accepted in God's sight, you have to be righteous. And the righteousness that you have to have is now being revealed in the gospel, and it's in, in the obedience of Jesus Christ. He is the righteousness that God reveals. And the only way into the kingdom is if His righteousness gets credited to your account. And the only way His righteousness can get credited to your account is by you trusting Him that that is the case. So we see this is the gospel that He's expounding and the way that the Jews were approaching it by thinking that they were the privileged people, by following the covenants that He gave them, that they would earn their way in, was just wrong. Now, I know we don't think of ourselves as perhaps the Jewish people following the old Ten Commandments and and that's going to earn us in, but we do quite frequently run into the idea that, well, this person's a good person, surely he's going to go to heaven. Or this person's a good person, surely God will accept him. We think that way. I mean, how many times do you meet somebody new, perhaps on your neighborhood, And after coming home and you tell your spouse about this person that you met, you say, oh, he seems like a really good guy. In our minds, we're differentiating between, well, there's the criminals who deserve to be punished by God, and then there's the rest of us who are generally good, as though we start out generally good unless we prove ourselves otherwise. That's kind of the general way I think our society approaches things, that people are basically good until they do something that ruins that status. But God has explained in the gospel, that Paul has expounded in the gospel, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. If I gave you what you deserved, then you would all be under the sentence of death. So it is very good news that God has revealed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to the world. So we have to have this this purpose of rejecting the Jewish people as a whole 
has to happen in order for God's purposes of salvation by grace to become that much clearer. It isn't by grace to the Gentiles and by works for the Jewish people. It is by grace for everyone. That's his, that's his message. That's the first purpose. Why is the first purpose of rejection of the Jews? It's to show and establish that, it, that salvation for God's people comes only and completely by the grace of God. It is His to give, not ours to earn. There's more, of course, to His purposes than that. God's purpose is also to redeem the nations. His purpose is to redeem the nations. You'll recall from chapter 9, Paul's discussion of the Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh, he's referring to the time when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and God had raised up Moses to go be their deliverer. And Moses had come to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And if you read the book of Exodus in its explanation of the account, repeatedly it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let the people go. But in Romans, Paul is explaining that it was, it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we, of course, in our minds want to ask, okay, well, which is it? Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? And the answer is, well, both. Pharaoh indeed hardened his heart. He was culpable. But there was a greater purpose behind his hardening of his heart, which was revealed in the fact that God had purposed it to happen in order that he might show his power to not only the Egyptian people, but to the Israelite people. I raised you up for this purpose and hardened you so that I might show my power. So there's this dual idea that on the one hand, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and is culpable of the judgment that God brings upon him and the nation. But on the other hand, God had purposed it in order to demonstrate his power for his people to see, that they might turn and put their faith in him. Now, the same thing is happening in large measure with the Jewish people. They are, they are indeed culpable of being rejected by God because they haven't understood the way into the kingdom. They haven't put their faith in the Messiah that He sent, Jesus Christ. And as a result, they are culpable and deserving to be rejected. But at the same time, God purposed it that they would do this. And so we read this in verses 7 through 10. The, uh, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So why did he do this? Why would God have purposed for Israel to reject the message, to have their eyes closed, darkened? Well, so that salvation might come to the Gentiles, to the nations. That's what he says. Look in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Was that the purpose? No. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So this is God's grand purpose. There is a purpose behind why it would appear the Jewish people are rejecting the message 
and that God seems to be rejecting the Jewish people. That's so that the message of salvation could go to the Gentiles. Now, again, this is not a new plan either. This is not a new purpose either. We see this all through the Old Testament. It may have been some, somewhat veiled if you're not looking explicitly for it or a little biased in your own, if you're a Jewish person and focusing on what God's going to do for you. But it's all throughout the prophets, this idea that God is going to the nations. It's even in the initial promise given to Abraham, their forefather, the very first one that he called out to be his own. He says, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And as if that's not explicit enough, time and again, he mentions other nations by name. If you go read the prophets, especially the prophet of Isaiah talks about Assyria and Babylon coming together with Israel. Now, that was remarkable at the time because Assyria and Babylon were the two enemy nations, sorry, Egypt and Assyria, were the two enemy nations historically of the people of Israel. And somehow God's going to bring all three of these people groups together in order to make something whole and something glorious. In Isaiah 49, he just says it point blank, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So here we have it. Why does God seem to be rejecting the Jews? One, that he could establish that salvation is by grace and grace alone. And number two, so that the message of salvation would indeed fulfill his earlier prophecies and it would go to the nations, that the nations might be brought in. Now, the purposes, of course, they don't stop there. There's two more that we're going to unpack. The next one is that God's purposes do indeed include the Jewish people. They do indeed include the Jewish people. So if you read this carefully, if you read this carefully, look back at verses 11 and 12 again. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, that's not the purpose. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Who's he talking about in this a- aspect? The, making the Jews jealous so that their, the Jewish people's, full inclusion is somehow implied that that's the direction, the ultimate direction of his purpose. So he's not, after all, abandoning his, his promises and purposes to the Jewish people. In fact, it's as if he's saying, it's not even just this small remnant ultimately, that's going to be in my kingdom, because my calling and promises, as he goes on later to say, are irrevocable. There is this implicit aspect that there will be some time in the future when the Jewish people themselves as a whole, not all, I don't mean every individual, but for the, will be characterized as a people that are coming and embracing this gospel. And what's going to do that? the provocation of the fact that the Gentiles have received this blessing and the Jews were left out. As they grow jealous, as they see it, as they see it happening on the earth, that God's people are, are the people that have embraced Him by faith. Those are the ones receiving the blessings of God that they once considered belonging uniquely to their people. Now, that, when is that going to happen? I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know if that's going to happen, if that's in the process of happening now over a slow period of time, or there will be some definitive time in the future. He does say something a little more explicit. 
in verses 25 and 26, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So there's that implication. All Israel will be saved. Now, I know commentators have, have jumped to different understandings of, well, who is this all Israel? What does that mean? And, and there, are, there is a case to be made that all Israel is referring to the church. There are places elsewhere in the New Testament where the church is explicitly referred to as the new Israel or the true Israel. But I don't think that that's the best way to understand it in this passage, mostly because Paul has been using Israel in a very explicit way all throughout this book. He's been referring to it as an explanation of why is it Israel or the Jewish people have been rejected. So I think there is a, an intention of what he's saying is there is the Jewish people are going to, at some point, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, be so provoked by the jealousy of what the Gentiles are experiencing that they will now be characterized as embracing Christ as, a, as opposed to being characterized as a group that has rejected Christ. Because right now they are a group that's characterized as people who have rejected Christ. So some time is coming. I don't know when that is. I don't know how that's going to work out. But I do know one thing about it because he goes on to explain what happens when that, when that time comes. What can we say about it? Well, that brings us to the last point. God's purpose is to bring blessing to the world. I want to look closely again at verses 12 through 15, so look there. He says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will will their full inclusion mean? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? There is this, you could say this, lesser to greater argument that Paul is using here. He doesn't really give us an idea of what that is. He, he refers to it as, as, a, as life from the dead. He refers to it as something greater than the riches that have been given to the Gentiles in the world. But he says, if God can do this in rejecting the Jews, a negative, if He can bring riches out of a negative, how much more can He bring riches out of something that's a positive? If in their rejection you receive riches, how much greater will it be for their inclusion? So there is this implication that when this day comes, there will be so much wonder of treasure that God is pouring out on the world, we cannot even imagine it. And I think really this is where he's going because what does he launch into right after he finally gets this point across? He launches into the great uh, doxology of these last verses that we find in verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! There's this aspect that the only thing left to do in understanding this and contemplating this is is dive into a time of, of singing the praises of God. And of course, as we get to this place, This is his wrapping up of kind of the doctrinal explanation of how does salvation by grace through faith work. 
It is going to be greater than we could possibly imagine. The purposes of God have not failed. It may be that your expectations were wrongly set, and in such case, your expectations need to be shaken so that your faith can become rock solid in the God as He's revealed Himself and the plan in which He's unfolded. So this is, in essence, Paul's summarization from chapters 1 through 11 of how is it that God is accomplishing His salvation. He's revealing His righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's important because there's not a single person on this earth who can earn it for himself. We all deserve instead death. But God, in His graciousness, has chosen some not to die, and by the work of His Holy Spirit has given birth to faith, faith that has expressed itself in the confession with the tongue that Jesus is the Christ, and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, so that you can walk in a newness of life, He says, a life in accord with the Spirit and not in accord with the flesh. So this is the gospel, and it's not that God is rejecting His people or His purposes. No, in fact, what is happening is now is to fulfill His purposes, which ultimately are to bring riches and blessing and treasure to all in His kingdom. So that closes the first 11 chapters so that we can turn in chapter 12 and ask the question, so what? (laughs) What now? How are we to live knowing this information? So we really get to explore the how-tos of what does it look like for this faith to be lived out in the true gospel that, caught, that, that Paul has explained. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for Your purposes and that Your purposes do not fail, that sometimes You allow our expectations to fail because they have been wrongly set so that You can build them, build our faith, on a rock-solid foundation of what you have revealed to be true about your purposes and your plan, specifically with regard to the person of Jesus Christ, from whom our righteousness comes as we confess and believe in Him. Father, help us to work with great anticipation of the blessings that you will pour out upon your people, even in the midst as we see hard things happening in the world today. In Jesus' name, amen.